um, truly today, I want to go back to basics. Uh, Jeremiah said it like this. He said in Jeremiah 6.16, this is what the Lord says. Stop and look at the crossroads. Look around. Ask for the old and godly ways and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest for your soul. But they replied, no, that's not the road we want. And he said, I posted them watchmen over you who would say, listen for the sound of the alarm. But you replied, no, we don't want to pay attention. Now that's Jeremiah speaking to the children of Israel just prior to their 70 years of Babylonian captivity and bondage. And uh, God trying to warn them, trying to redirect them, trying to give them a pathway through their problems. And I'm here today to tell you that God has given us a pathway through our problems. He has given us the answer. But it's not something new, not something we're going to discover on the internet. It's not something we're going to discover uh, like a great discovery of tomorrow. But it is something old. It is as old as the Word of God itself. And it is apostolic. And I'm here to tell you, if we will go back to what worked for the first church in the first century, the apostolic church, it will work for us today. It will work in every situation it will work in every generation, and it will work in every nation. And so we find those four building blocks, and we've been discovering this for the last few weeks and going over and over again, and I'm trying to move quickly in the beginning so I don't re-preach the first three weeks of this four-week series. Uh, but the four building blocks of the apostolic church are found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 through 47. And I'm going to read them for posterity's sake. You know what they mean if you're an apostolic and if you're a Pentecostal and no doubt you've heard them. But there might be someone listening uh, somewhere in a far land or someone that's never heard it before. So I'm going to read that now in that account on the day that the church was born. Just after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they had come out of the upper room speaking in other tongues, looking like they were on fire and looking like they were drunk men. And so uh, in response to that, Peter preaches the great message with the other uh, disciples and tells them that they have crucified Jesus, whom God hath made both Lord and Christ. And therefore, let all of the house of Israel, I'm starting in the 36th verse, know uh, that assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what should we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and unto your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God should call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted unto all men as every man had need. 
And they continued with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In this familiar passage to Pentecostals, we see the four building blocks to the apostolic church. First, it was doctrine. When you see uh, these four pillars or building blocks, you see doctrine, simply think the teachings of, the disciplines of, the, the way they lived and looked at life. So we see first, doctrine. Secondly, we see prayer, or we talked about prayer. Now, these in your Bible are found in a different order. They're found in the King James as doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. This is not a priority order. It's like four wheels on a car. You're not going to get to where you need to go with three of them. Three won't do it. Two won't do it. One wheel is not more important than the other. You can say, well, the rear wheels are where the power comes from, but the front wheel is where the steering comes from. So all four of these uh, pillars, wheels, these legs of the chair are significant to being a part of the apostolic church. So the first we talked about was doctrine. The second we talked about was prayer. The third we talked about uh, the third and the fourth we will talk about today combined together. Two weeks ago, we looked at apostolic doctrine. And this is a brief overview of apostolic doctrine. Not comprehensive and not meant to be comprehensive. But it's just a brief overview. We dove deep and, and leaned into apostolic doctrine on that Wednesday night following that and did 2.0 on the Sunday sermon. We tried to do that last week with prayer but the weather got in the way. And today, we're going to talk about uh, fellowship and breaking of bread. So, an overview of apostolic doctrine. Very simply, they all believe that Jesus was and is God in the flesh. They believed in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that by doing so, he conquered death and hell, and he purchased our sins and our salvation. They believe that to accept his work at the cross, you must repent of your sins. You must be baptized with two baptisms, baptism in the water and baptism in the spirit. Baptism in the water in the word of God was always done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And baptism with the Holy Spirit was always evidenced by speaking in an unknown tongue and prophesying unto God in an unknown tongue. We, they also believed in the apostolic church, in doctrine, the doctrine of holiness. And holiness, we said, is not a bad word, and it's not something we're ashamed of. Holiness is our gift to God. It's our part of our relationship with our heavenly Savior. And then they looked at, and uh, uh, the next thing we looked at as the apostolic doctrine was that they all possessed and practiced some sort of spiritual gift. As the Spirit of the Holy Ghost came upon them, they received gifts of the Spirit. We don't want to have time to go in that. We did in detail, and we will later at another time. And then finally, they were all looking for and preparing for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They believed in that day, 2,000 years ago, 
that he could come at any time. We must keep that apostolic doctrine. And if we keep that in mind, not only will we stay sane, will we stay safe, and we will also stay uh, uh, saved. Excuse me. So our goal in this series is to teach us in these uncharted times how to stay sane, safe, and saved. And so if we will keep that doctrine, then we will learn uh, how they stayed safe, sane, and saved. And um, so let's go forward. Uh, then last Sunday, uh, we went back to the basics of apostolic prayer. We told you, and the Word of God is very clear, Jesus was very clear, that prayer is a product of relationship. When his disciples asked him, how should we pray, teach us to pray, he started it very simply, our Father. Now I know we go on to the other part, but no prayer can, be, can touch the throne room of God without a relationship with a heavenly being, without a relationship with our heavenly Father. And we have to see prayer as a product of communication with someone that we have a relationship with. Amen. And out of that relationship of prayer comes the joining of two spirits, our spirit with his spirit. And when we join our spirit with the Holy Spirit, it produces power. Power to heal, power to deliver, power to work beyond nature in a supernatural fashion. We believe that as the apostolic church truly believed that prayer brought power. We found out what prayer wasn't. Prayer is not thinking about God. Prayer is not thinking about your problem. Prayer is not even praying the answer to your problem. That's God's business. Thinking about God is meditation. That's good business. And thinking about your problem, that's worry and that's bad business. So we found out what prayer wasn't and we found out what prayer is. Prayer is simply communicating with God. It's talking out loud, not thinking to God. That's called meditation, but talking out loud to God, that's called prayer, and it puts your faith in action. And prayer takes you outside of your own abilities. Prayer takes you to a place where you are working beyond your own abilities. And then we moved on to what prayer does. Prayer puts you in the spiritual realm. We don't want to, I'm trying to move fast now so to cover this so we can go to what uh, God has given us for today. It puts you in the, prayer, uh, the spiritual realm. Prayer gets God's attention. Prayer surrenders your will to God's will. If you missed last Sunday, you can go back on our YouTube channel and, and see and watch this sermon or go back on Facebook after we're through today. Prayer surrenders your will to God's will. Prayer puts God's will into action. Prayer brings the supernatural power of God. And prayer builds a memorial before God. Literally, your prayer relationship develops your place in, eter in eternity with Him. Your prayer will memorial be memorialized before God and build you a mansion on streets of gold. So today, we move into today's lesson, if you will. It feels like a lesson to me because you're not there uh, jumping and worshiping with me. I, I sense in my spirit that some of you are with us this morning, and it, and it feels good to, to feel that in my spirit. But to be quite frank with you, it's a little odd coming to you from my, my office, the place where I study and pray and make decisions. Uh, but uh, I believe you're with me today. 
So today we're going to move into the next two uh, foundational stones of the apostolic church. And that is we're, we're going to talk about fellowship and we're going to talk about breaking of bread. Now they are very closely related and that's why I'm talking about them together. They're related much like doctrine cannot be separated from prayer. And prayer and doctrine are related. And they are very much uh, a spiritual and an ideological part of the apostolic church. But as much as prayer and doctrine are a part of the apostolic church and are spiritual and ideological, then you have uh, today fellowship and breaking of bread. And they are a part of the church in a very practical way, in a, in a, in a, in a very everyday kind of way. So they are separate, but they are, uh, and, and they're not the same, but they're very closely related. So we're going to cover them together so we can bounce them back and forth. And then if God wills, we'll come back on Wednesday night. We'll dive deep into how we can apply uh, fellowship and the breaking of bread into our life. Today, we're just going to have enough time, and, and hopefully you'll stay with me through this next few moments or minutes uh, uh, maybe an hour, uh, some of you out there are probably laughing at this point, uh, of, of study and, and discovery to understand the, uh, what the apostolic church, what made them successful, even through all of Nero's persecutions and all of the things they went through. This, this is what sustained them and kept them sane, kept them safe, and kept them saved. And so that's what we're trying to do is look back to see where we're going in the future. And so when we look back at fellowship, and we're going to, uh, we're going to handle these in uh, this order, fellowship first because it's more familiar to us, and then breaking of bread, which I want to go into in a little um, deeper detail that you might not know some of the things we're going to discuss today or I'm going to discuss with you and you're going to hear. Uh, first, we, we, need to, we need to understand how uh, the apostolic church approached not only doctrine and prayer, but fellowship and breaking of bread. They pursued, the Bible said it, uh, they continued steadfastly. The word continue is like someone on a journey that has a destination in mind. In other words, until we get to heaven, we've got to continue on these things, and we've got to pursue them. And steadfastly is with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, and with all of their strength. So if you're going to be an apostolic, church is not a sideline to you. Church is not something you do on Sunday. Some church is something you wake up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and you think about pursuing the plan of God for your life, and what are you going to be doing in, for God in your life, and how are you going to be applying the doctrine to your life, and how are you going to be sharing what God has given you with others and ministering to the needs of others. And so, uh, with that in mind, uh, we want to uh, pursue into this lesson the exact same way. Another thing that we need to remember today is that Luke is writing this just after the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has written. And now he begins to write um, this history of the apostolic church that we know as the book of Acts or, or the historical account of the actions of the apostles. And uh, we need to understand that this writing comes some 30 years, some little say a little sooner, 28, some say maybe 31. So we'll just go with 30 today. 30 years after the birth of the church. So this is not a moment-by-moment -moment description of what's going on, but this is a compilation of 
his historical understanding and the gathering of accounts of how the apostolic church became what it was in the day that Luke wrote this letter and what it was becoming while it was setting the world on fire and turning the world upside down. So uh, uh, this account starts at, at the day of Pentecost and ends at his present time around uh, 60 A.D. You can go back and forth with the numbers. I'm not going to, to deal with that today. Um, the book of Acts was his collective observation of the apostolic church. We also must remember that the apostolic church is integral and inseparable from the Jewish faith. I'm going to stop and say that again. The apostolic church, if you call yourself an apostolic Pentecostal, you must be integral and inseparable, inseparable from the Jewish faith. This is not the Christian faith. This is the Judeo-Christian faith, and that's what makes us apostolics. To understand the Christian faith, you must understand the Jewish faith, and you must take the writings in context of the Jewish faith. To understand Christian lifestyle, you must understand Jewish lifestyle. Quite simply, the apostolic church was indeed the Judeo-Christian church. And now we're going to take a deeper look at the final two elements of the apostolic church today, and that is the uh, fellowship and breaking of bread. Let's start now with fellowship. And if you're a part of Temple Christian Center or you follow us online or part of our online church, you know we, we talk a lot about fellowship. We, we understand the Greek word koinonia at TCC. We, we have participated and had small groups and home fellowships in our church for almost 25 years now. And uh, so we're, we've been a part of this concept for a very long time. So I won't need to spend as much time today on that. And if you're listening to, to, to me for the first time or you're getting this somewhere for the first time, please don't think that uh, because I'm not talking as much about it, it's not as significant or there's not as much to say. I would say there's equally, uh, if not more, to say about fellowship than there is breaking of bread. But we have in the Temple Christian Center, in the context of the Temple Christian Center, covered it um, quite a bit more. So uh, I won't be talking as much today about fellowship as I am breaking of bread. But I do want to talk about uh, fellowship. Uh, as we already mentioned, uh, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Uh, you see it uh, produced in the English as not only fellowship, but communion or community. Uh, it is uh, very equivalent with the word of commonness or oneness. Now, it is a spiritual relationship that we have with one another. This koinonia uh, is talking about, when we're talking about the context here, that they continued steadfastly in uh, fellowship. We're not talking about a fellowship with God, that comes under prayer, and certainly there is a fellowship with God, but we're talking about fellowship with uh, others, whether that is believers or that's the non-believer. Uh, so when we speak of this term of fellowship, it is a spiritual relationship. We're not speaking of the physical relationship. That will come in a moment under the breaking of bread. But this is how we interact um, our ideology, our, our passion, our spirit, our true feeling uh, about others, 
the lost, uh, the unbeliever, the, the idolater, uh, the, the ones that serve false gods, or even our own brothers or sisters. It is uh, the decision to jointly participate or not participate with someone or something. So this, this ideal that the apostolic church had fellowship, it, it was a, um, and, and without being uh, coarse uh, or vulgar in any kind of way, uh, one writer, ancient writer, described it as a social intercourse. It was where human spirits became one. Uh, you joined with one another. And uh, this fellowship includes two elements. One is deepening friendships. Deepening friendships. When we talk about how they had fellowship one with another, they had deepening friendships. Uh, the apostolic church, motivated by fellowship, moved from friendship, though, into family. So uh, there is a sense in an apostolic church when you have fellowship there, that when you come into that environment, that you're not coming into just another church, but you're coming into a family. Uh, people often ask us about our own facility and our own uh, congregation, and we do have family members there and some uh, uh, quite large families. They'll say, are y'all all family around here? Uh, and we laugh a little bit with that and go, yeah, no. Uh, yes, but no. And, but the sense is there that we are family. And, and uh, in that family is where we develop the terminology, and some of you at TCC may not even understand this. This is why we say Brother Sharp or Sister Sharp. It's not a, a, a term of um, like a Mr. or Mrs. that we stick as qualification or, or identification of who we are, but it is a term of endearment. When we speak to someone, when I say uh, Brother Tim, or Sister Priscilla, I'm speaking to them like they're my brother, or like they're my sister. And I'm not going to go deep today into this, but I do want to tell you that when Jesus was teaching one time to a full house, and his mother and his brother showed up a little late, um, the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, uh, uh, we know the house is full, but your mother and your brothers are outside, and we'd like to make a place for them. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, these are my brothers and my sisters. This is my family. Now, he wasn't rejecting the faith of his mother or his brothers. He was simply saying that in the family of God, whether you're my biological mother or my biological brother makes no difference than you are my biological, uh, if you weren't my biological. Uh, often uh, have fun with Pastor Solomon. Uh, he is our Kenyan pastor, and he is certainly a different color than I am, and we traveled around the world several, many times together, and he will say, and I will say, this is my brother by another mother, and we truly do act like brothers. Uh, people comment about that. It's not because we're trying to be, uh, not be racist or, or trying to have my uh, African friend or my white friend. It's, it, it doesn't even come into play. Racism does not even come into play in an apostolic church because truly, if you have fellowship, color doesn't matter, creed doesn't matter, background doesn't matter. You're just brothers and sisters in the Lord. I've got to go on, and I didn't want to spend this much time. We'll circle back on some of this on Wednesday night, and we'll dive deep into it on Wednesday night if God will help us and you'll join with us. It was uh, to fellowship includes two elements, deepening friendships and developing a common vision 
So the two elements are deepening friendship and developing a common vision or common goals or the same priorities. So uh, in this apostolic church, as uh, just much like as a husband and wife, as they get married and they become more like each other, uh, in a few years, their goals, their desires, their dreams almost cannot be separated. They're merged together into one fabric so you cannot tell one from the other. These are the two elements of fellowship. The word fellowship means much, much more than just being together. It, it means having things, all things, if you will, having them in common. It refers even to the sharing of material goods. Now, this is certainly not a form of communism or even in our day and age of socialism. Uh, uh, this apostolic faith is not a, a form of that, uh, of communism or socialism, because the program, or if you will, the ideology, the ministry, or the cornerstone of fellowship is purely and totally voluntary. It's totally voluntary. No one makes you give. No one demands. There will not be a knock at the door if you don't give to missions or help your fellow man. Uh, the only accountability will be to God himself. And it's not a form of communism because it's voluntary and because it's motivated by agape or love. Unconditional, one-way love. Giving without the expectation of return. It's simply uh, love in action. So, we find out that the new believers met together. Now, they met in two places. We'll talk about this a little bit more later. But they met in two places. Once a week on the first day of the week. Not on Saturday, but on Sunday. They met at Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was the outer um, porch around the outside of the temple. They could not all go into the temple. Some of them could go in one courtyard. Some did a little further in another courtyard. But they, none of them, except the high priest could go in, and the Levites could go into the temple grounds and minister there. So there developed a social life in the Jewish culture around the temple. This was where they bought, they sold. It's like going to the market or the mall. Uh, it's where they did their daily life and gathered their wares, sold their goods on the first day of the week. Much like our Monday, this was their Sunday. And this was the day of the Lord's resurrection. And so they would go on this first day of the week in this public setting, and they would worship God and give thanks and witness and testify what they had seen and heard of Jesus Christ. And, and so that was one place they met. But the Bible said they continued not only to meet in the temple, but they met daily house in house to house. So we see this whole different um, side of the church developing that we perhaps don't see as much today. And that is that saints were meeting together on a daily basis. doesn't necessarily mean they met on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. Uh, well, Saturday would be the Sabbath for them, but uh, so on and so forth. Uh, it didn't mean that. It meant that you couldn't. They were always involved in um, uh, developing these relationships and meeting together. Whether it was a Monday night or a Wednesday night or a Thursday night, they were there in their houses doing that, looking forward to coming together again on the first day of the week, which was Sunday and is Sunday, 
and worshiping in a public forum together. So, the new believers met for worship. They ministered unto God when they met for worship. They met in public places. They lifted up public prayer. They met in private places, in their homes, and they prayed and worshiped and ministered to God. They met in those places to worship and they to meet each other's spiritual needs. When they came to the houses, there they would begin to pray in this house-to-house type setting, and they would meet each other's spiritual needs. The Bible simply says, and plainly says, where two or three are gathered in his name, he's going to make his habitation or his dwelling there. And so they would come together in these small groups in their homes, lifting up the name of the Lord, and the Spirit of the Holy Ghost would always be there. They came for worship, they came for fellowship, they ministered to each other's uh, social needs and interactive needs and, and um, heartbreaks and heartaches uh, in these house-to-house meetings together. Uh, and then finally, they came to these house-to-house meetings and they met together for meals. Um, uh, and for uh, we're going to talk about that in the breaking of bread for teaching on a daily basis. And in those daily meals, there they would meet each other's physical needs or they would plan to meet each other's physical needs. And in those meal settings we're going to talk about in a moment, life change occurs. Again, I'm going to go back to a concept so we don't get confused. And I'm going to use the word communism, not communism. Uh, Communism is not socialism or communism. It says in the Bible, they sold their possessions and they shared them with those in need. It is definitely not communism. This system of mutual ownership is called communism. Now let me just note the difference between communism and communism. Communism says, what is mine is yours. Communism or socialism, says what is yours is mine. See, the motivation is totally different. And when you are an apostolic, you believe that God has blessed you so that you can share with others. I think when you're a socialist, you believe that what others have, you're going to take and share uh, whether they like it or not. I'm not going to stand to defend or to castigate socialism or communism today. That's not the point of today's message. So, this is the difference. This financial fellowship had its problems, and we'll talk about that. And it still has its problems today. And we're going to talk about that on Wednesday. So join back with us, and we'll talk a little more about that. Now I want to move into breaking of bread. Fellowship is the front door to the apostolic church. It leads us into the living room where we find the Jewish supper table. I'm going to say that again. Fellowship is the front door to the apostolic church that leads us into the living room around the Jewish table. And that Jewish table, that dinner meal, that supper meal, that evening meal, is the centerpiece, was the centerpiece of the Jewish home and is the centerpiece of the apostolic church. It is the centerpiece of the apostolic church. I'm not saying it's more important than anything else, but I'm saying it's not less important than apostolic doctrine or apostolic prayer or anything else, apostolic fellowship. We're talking about breaking of bread. 
breaking of bread is the physical, physically breaking bread, physically eating, physically um, shaking hands, physically being in each other's presence. It is the physical relationship between believers. Many Christians today assumed, assume that this refers to taking communion. And how often, even in, in a Pentecostal church, have somebody say, how often do we take communion, Pastor? How often do we celebrate the, Lord, the, the Lord's Supper? How often, do, and I say to them, daily. They look at me kind of strange if they're not from TCC for a while. Because every time we come together and we sit down at a meal and begin to fellowship and begin to talk about the goodness of God, we are fulfilling this commandment, this ritual, this custom, this cornerstone of the apostolic church called breaking of bread. They have this image, most uh, non-Pentecostals will have this image of the early believers meeting in a, in a home and they get a tiny little tasteless wafer on their mouth and they take a little symbolic amount of wine or grape juice uh, and uh, just as many Christians do in their church today. I would think that our apostolic fathers and, the, and certainly the apostolic church, if they saw that process being produced in, 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 in their time, they would laugh. And not, not in a cynical kind of way, but in a humorous kind of way that uh, I don't think you get it. I, I don't think you understand what actually happens at the table. However, uh, we, um, we don't have the uh, right uh, to to take the context of a 21st century church or 22nd century church or a, a 20th century church, we don't have the context of saying taking a historical view of of a church through the centuries and 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 saying well this is how it should be done because uh our, you know the the Catholic Church or the Lutheran or the whatever church I came out of uh, did it this way. But if you're going to be an apostolic, you must take a first century look at the apostolic church, how they uh, looked at uh, this supper, this breaking of bread. And uh, it, it, you must look into first century Judaism. It must be taken in context. And for uh, the Jews then, as it is now, fellowship was mediated by meals. In other words, fellowship's the front door. Hey, why don't you come see me? Hey, good to see you. Why don't y'all come over tonight and uh, let's sit down and have a meal together. Hey, Saturday, why don't we get together with the kids? And, and so fellowship is the front door, the ideological or the spiritual approach to connecting with someone. But beyond that, uh, it, uh, fellowship just mediates the meal. The meal facilitates the fellowship. You're going to see how these two are integral and inseparable. To say that the early Messianic, uh, Messianic Jews broke bread is to say that they ate together, that they spent physical time together. This is not symbolism. This is not wafers and small cups. This is reality of somebody cooking, somebody baking, somebody breaking, somebody blessing, somebody praying, somebody talking, somebody fellowshipping. And all of this happened around this Jewish uh, table. The meaning uh, of eating together must be grasped. You've got to get this picture if you're going to be an apostolic. You're going to see why it's so significant if you'll stay with me to the end. 
and we're getting close, uh, so just stay with me. The meaning of eating must be grasped. You must get a hold of this. The evening meal, or the supper table, was the centerpiece of Jewish life. I'm going to say it again. The evening meal, or the supper table, was the centerpiece of all Jewish life. It was at that evening meal that they discussed the day's trials and triumphs. And they sat around talking about what they had been through, what God had done for them. It was at that moment. It was that place, that supper table, the centerpiece of Jewish life, that they discussed tomorrow's plans and purpose. It was made at that table. Jesus would say, don't say, uh, go into the, I'll go in the city and buy and sell tomorrow, but say you otherwise, if the Lord wills, I'll go. And because it was very common at these evening meals to say, I start my journey tomorrow, or tomorrow we're going to plow the field, or tomorrow we're going to butcher a calf, or tomorrow. And he was warning them or speaking to them that in all of our planning around this meal, uh, that we are to consider Christ. We are to consider God's will in our life. So you have to see this setting and this supper table. This religion, uh, religious Jews began this meal with breaking of the matzah, the bread. And when they break the bread, they say a, a, a baraka over it. In Judaism, a baraka is a formula of blessing or thanksgiving. It is a liturgy that is recited as they're breaking the bread and they're passing it out to others to give God thanks, to give God praise for what he's done. So this is very familiar to the Jewish church, this celebration, this thanksgiving while they're taking this food. They don't want to put this food in their mouth without giving thanks for it, without understanding that God has made the provision. They break off a piece of the bread of the loaf and they eat it so that the blessing of God is specific for his provision. They bless God for his specific uh, provision to them and, uh, and, 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 and giving them that bread and uh, so on and so forth. Jesus knew and observed this very practice. That's why he talked in the way he talked. But while he was at his last supper, he gave additional meaning to the act of breaking bread. So in the context of a Jewish meal, Jesus has his disciples at his last supper, and he begins to speak to them and change the context, not only to give thanks unto God, but he's going to tell them that they need to be thankful for his broken body and his blood that was shed for them. So he changes the contextual meaning from an invisible heavenly father to the Jeho from the Jehovah of the Old Testament to the Jesus of the New Testament, which is God with us, Emmanuel, God in our presence. And he's saying, as oft as you do this, as you break this bread, then do it, un remember me, remember my body that is broken. As often as you put this cup, you take a drink, remember my blood that was shed. So he takes the context of this Jewish table and he weaves into it his, his uh, context when he said, um, this is my body broken for you. This practice clearly becomes part of the early church's um, uh, Torah, its, its law, its customs uh, as they go forward 
from the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper, forward, and they begin to uh, celebrate that together. Now, down the line, in a Gentile church, um, a long time down the line, you see some confusion and some controversy, some drunkenness and some uh, cutting of the line to get to the food first and all of that that Paul has to rebuke. He's rebuking Corinthians. These are not Jews. These are Gentiles. They had no concept of the Jewish customs. So he is having to establish them very carefully in the, in the Corinthian letter. So we'll go on about that later. Uh, but let me conclude. Um, after the entire meal uh, was a time to be... Uh, um, let, me, let me make sure I didn't uh, pass something up. Came, uh, early believers were to recall Jesus' death for them as they began their meal. Then after that, the entire meal was to, after the original breaking of the bread, the entire meal was to be devoted to fellowship. This uh, communion uh, in the ordinary sense of the word, not in a technical sense of when we say communion, a cup, a wafer, and so on and so forth. In a very ordinary sense, they would just start talking. They would start eating. They would start fellowshipping. Um, this fellowship was not merely socialization, however. Think about it. For just a second, we're going to I'll make a very important point here. This fellowship is not at this meal, this physical meal where they're having fellowship, is not just merely worldly socialization that ignores God. In other words, it wasn't fellowship for fellowship's sake, but it was fellowship for God's sake. Uh, the Mishnah, which is the uh, not the, the Torah or the Logos, but it is the customs of the church in everyday language. Consider, says this, and one of the rabbis, the very uh, significant rabbi, says in the Mishnah, he says, if there is no meal, there is no study of Torah. If there is no meal, there's no Torah. There's study of Torah or discussion of. If there is no meal, there is no Torah. And then he says, but conversely, if there is no Torah, if there's no study of the Bible, the Word of God, there is no meal. So they are inseparable. You cannot separate this apostolic breaking of bread and fellowship from the concept of talking about God and what God has done, what God's brought you through, so on and so forth. Each aids in bringing about the full expression of the other, and it complements it. Now you see why I couldn't teach one Sunday on fellowship and the next Sunday on breaking of bread. They are integral and inseparable, and they stand together as one complementing another. In other words, if one becomes preoccupied with religious studies, but ignores social interaction, then it's this individual study does little good for society. If you get so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good, you're not apostolic. You've got to be heavenly-minded with social recompense, with social interaction. Uh, the church is meant to shape culture and to be in the world, but not of the world, to be the salt of the world and to flavor and to uh, uh, let it change the world in a way that pleases to God. So, if you become preoccupied with religious studies and ignores normal social interaction, the individual study does little good for society. But conversely, if at the main time of socialization, the meal, one ignores the things of God, it is a sign that religious truth has not deeply penetrated into the life of the individual. 
If you're halfway through your reality, your your meal, your your date doing life together kind of concept, oh yeah, I need to pray today, then the love of God is not penetrated into your heart. Uh, you need to get to the table and you need to let somebody instruct you at the table and say, hey man, uh, it's prayer time. We've got to go to a deeper place with God so that your actual commitment to Christ uh, cannot be separated from your, your, your plans, your purpose, your conversation, your lifestyle. Jesus, by his identification of himself with the bread, focuses the meal on his sacrifice. He enables this reworking of the, of the Mishnah. And here's how it would be reworked. If there is no time of interaction with fellow believers... One's identification with Jesus and study of God's word is incomplete. But if the time of interaction with fellow believers does not relate itself to Jesus' death on our behalf and encourage one another in living a life God wants us to live, then it's just been a waste of time. You see, he changes the Mishnah to focus on the sacrificed Savior, our Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, what he did for us. The apostolic church absolutely understood that true life change or discipleship can only take place in the context of relationship. And relationship can only take place by daily doing life together. Now, I'm going to say that all over again in case you missed it. The apostolic church understood that true life change, i.e. discipleship, disciplines, coming after Christ, being like true life change or di di discipleship can only take place in the context of relationship. And relationships can only take place by doing life together. You see why it's so significant to our doctrine, to our personal prayer and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, to involve doing life together with other Christians, to involve serving others uh, in our community who are not even believers, who but because in doing so, even our enemies, by feeding our enemies, or when one does evil to us, we do good to them. Uh, the Bible says it has a profound effect on them, and they see the love of God in us. You see why this interaction is so significant? This is not just a building we go to. This is not just something we call ourselves, but this is who and what we are, and we live it on a daily basis. If we are to stand on the firm foundation of the apostolic message and the apostolic method, the apostolic doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers, if we stand on that, we will find sanity in every situation, even in 2021, even in this crazy, crazy pandemic we're in. We will find safety and the Bible said we'll find rest, which is peace. And surely we will find salvation for our soul in eternity if we continue to share this good news in this gospel of Jesus Christ. The believers 
in the book of Acts. They met in two places. They met in the temple, which we would call corporate worship. It would be similar to coming to uh, the building we have at 5105 West Adams. And then they met in their homes, places of assembly for ministry. They met once a week in Solomon's porch, and they met daily in their houses. The early church knew that those public services were where conversions happened. It's where they got converts. But they did more than make concert, uh, converts. Sometimes, it, 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 I'm going to personalize this. It, it, uh, I learned this as a young minister. I, I, I heard all these other churches having revivals, and I said, God, I want to have 50-soul revival in our church. And so we began to pray and fast, and, and, and I focused in on seven days for whatever reason, a 50-soul revival, God. And, uh, uh, and so I had the right evangelist come in and begin to preach uh, seven days straight. Actually, it would have been eight from Sunday to Sunday and every night, including Saturday. We had service, and, uh, and, and I believe God was going to give us 50 souls, 50 converts that were going to convert their life to Jesus Christ. And you know what the funny thing or the unique thing was in that uh, eight-day period, we had 47. We didn't reach 50. Oh, shucks, we didn't get our goal. But the reason we only had 47 is that's all we could get there in that seven-day period. Everyone that came received the gift of the Holy Ghost. But in a year from that, I look back at that 50-soul revival, and there were only three people that were still continuing in the faith that they had confessed and accepted in their life as they were filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized in Jesus' name in those eight days. And I realized there was more to it than just conversions. There has to be discipleship. And that's what started me 25 years ago on the journey to the missing half of the church, the other half of the church. Truly, in the public setting, when we're preaching on Sunday, the Holy Ghost falls, the Spirit begins to fall. And like on the day of Pentecost, people uh, flow out in the Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues. Some of them look like they have fire on them. Some of them look like they're drunk. They all speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. But there's more to it than converts, converts. And there's more to it than conversions. We must make disciples. Jesus commanded not only that we go into the, all the world and baptize, but we go into all the world and baptize and make disciples. Discipleship is done in the home. It's done in that closed, closed setting. Certainly you can use a building, at the, 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 a room at the, the church for a, a, a class or so on and so forth, and that would qualify as a small group. But the truth of the matter is, real life change occurs in the context of relationship. And till we bring people into our life, till we start teaching them on a daily basis, till we walk with them, never turning loose of that convert along life's journey, once you have a child, when, does they, when do they not become your child? When they turn 18 or when they go to college? No, they're your child forever. They're your child forever. And this is how discipleship occurs. They made more than converts. They understood that discipleship could only happen in these small private meetings where they could literally join their spirit with the other person's spirit and do life together. On the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 New converts in the first day. 
5,000 was added to that number in the next day. There would have been no building or facility or program made then or now that could have possibly moved those people into a life closer to Christ. But together they would meet in their homes. They would sit down at that evening meal. They would break bread and remember the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And they would begin to converse, talk about their tragedies and their triumphs together. They would dig deep into the scriptures or the words of God that he had spoken as rehearsed to them by others. And they would pass those words back and forth. And then they would begin to pray. And as they begin to pray, the power of the Holy Ghost would fall as I feel it falling right now on you and I, even in this moment. And life change would occur. People would make a decision to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they would begin to change the things in their reality that was not like him and begin to look more like him. This was the miracles and the wonders of the apostolic church. The Bible said many signs and wonders were confirmed and done by the apostles. Sister Sharp, if you'll help me. And they had powerful testimonies among their selves and among the unsaved Jews. Not only because of the miracles that were done by the apostles, but also because the way the members fellowshiped and loved each other. When the outside world saw them loving each other and fellowshipping with other, it caused them to take a different look. The risen Lord continued to work in them, and the people continued to be saved. What an amazing church setting. Christians meet, excuse me, were not in the, in the book of Acts were not content just to meet once a week. They met on a daily basis. They cared on a daily basis. They won souls on a daily basis. They searched the scriptures on a daily basis. They increased the numbers on a daily basis. Their Christian faith was, uh, faith was not a day-to-day -day reality. It was, uh, excuse me, it was a day-to-day -day reality. It was not a once-a-week routine. I'm trying to get to the end. I'm sorry for stumbling at the last here. Why did they do it? Because the risen Christ was a reality to them. He was their life, their conversation, everything about them. And his resurrection power was working in them and through them. These signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick. They should cast out devils. If they've committed any sins, and excuse me, I'm, and, and, uh, if they take any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. Here's where I'm trying to go. The apostolic church had purpose, power, popularity, and people. They had their doctrine gave them direction. Their prayer gave them power. Their fellowship gave them favor with all the people. And the breaking of bread gave them disciples. And the church was added to daily by the power of God and the people of God as they celebrated him in doctrine, prayer, fellowship, and breaking of bread. 